and you make your way down and you start seeing the canyon of the Aporimac River. It's a deep, deep river. I must add that Peru has many deep canyons and this is one of them. Just to see the turquoise water of the river when you first get up on top and look down is pretty amazing. Episode 343, Robert and Daisy Kunstetter talk about trekking in South America. I believe, I believe that adventure sports will improve your health. I believe that adventure sports will improve your outlook on life. I believe that adventure sports will build community, heal families, and inspire children. I believe that adventure sports will improve this planet. And I believe that adventure is fun. Travis and I created the Adventure Sports Podcast because we believe that adventure sports can make a real difference in this world. The Adventure Sports Podcast creates joy, health, purpose, relationships, memories, and second chances. Do you believe? It is our goal in the new year to double the number of listeners to ASP. Why? To double the good the show is doing. We started this show on the last day of February nearly three years ago. So by the last day of February this year, we will be celebrating double the joy, double the health, double the memories, and double the second chances. This is our challenge to you. Do you believe? Join with us. Tell others about the show. Tell them about the 340-plus episodes of stories, examples, and inspiration. Tell them about this resource that is there for them to explore and encounter. Kickstart their adventure. Kickstart a life. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hello, friends. Kurt here. Thanks again for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast today. I have a wonderful interview today with a couple who live in Ecuador, actually in Vilcambaba. I didn't say that quite right. I'm going to try that again. In Vilcabamba, Ecuador. Very good, Kurt. <laughs> they've lived there for 14 years, and they are writers who write trekking guides for Ecuador and Peru. And so I am really excited to visit with them today about life in South America and adventure in South America. Robert and Daisy Kunstetter, welcome to the program. Thank you, Curtis. Thank you, Curtis. Muchas gracias y buenas tardes a todos. Good afternoon. <laughs> Thank you. Buenas tardes. I guess the first question is just to get some context about who you are and, and what you're doing. So you live in Ecuador, but you've spent a lot of time in Peru. And I saw on your website, I thought this was fun. Uh, Daisy, you were born and raised in the Andes of Ecuador. And then Robert, you were uh, born in Montreal, Canada. Daisy went to Montreal for her studies at university, and she and Robert met. They planned a one-year adventure back down to South America that has lasted now, did you say, 35 years? Thereabouts, yes. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, and, and counting, Kurt. Yeah, we got to hear that story. So how does a one-year trip turn into a 35-year lifestyle? 
there's so much to enjoy down here that um, one year is certainly not enough. It's a wonderful continent, South America, all of the Americas, really, and there's just so much to know and so much to enjoy, so we're still doing it. And oh, it happened fun. gradually, Kurt. It wasn't a decision that we took from one moment to the next. Um, one trail led us to another, and here we are. That's that's really cool. So how has Ecuador and Peru changed in that time period? There have been a great many changes over those years. Um, these were, particularly Peru, had a troubled time from 1980 to about the year 2000. Um, there was a lot of hardship in the country. There was an insurgent movement that some people might have heard of. Uh, called Sendero Luminoso, that caused a great deal of suffering among the Peruvian people. And those were the years when we first came to travel there. And the contrast between those dark days and what we see now couldn't be any greater. Um, the troubled times are behind the country. Um, it's open to visitors and tourists. And by and large, the trekking routes and the backcountry of Peru is very safe. In fact, I'd venture to say it's among the safest parts of the country, more so than the large cities of the coast, for example. And so visitor, visitors can come and enjoy their Peruvian experience without the sorts of concerns that we had when we first came there. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, in the Western mindset, some of us remember a lot of the press that came out during those troubled times, but we don't hear how things have changed because only the bad news is reported, right? So in the back of bad my mind... travels fast. Yeah, I, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh, Peru, they had a lot of unrest there. Did they call themselves in English the Shining Light? Is that right? Shining, shining path. path. The Shining Path. Okay. Yeah. Shining but Path. that has that finished about... I think in nine, about 2000. In 2000, so it's been now 17 years of peace and... Uh, and considerable prosperity as well. Um, Peru is an increasingly middle-class society. Um, and the same with Ecuador. Ecuador even more so. Bolivia perhaps a little less, but in all the countries, perhaps that's the biggest change. Uh, the They're not the backwards poor countries people might expect oh that's fun that's at the, good to know. and at the same time they still have a lot of natural beauty that is pristine and can be explored and that's where the adventurous people should head and oh, yeah. also authenticity that's a key word that i think we'd like to mention about all three countries but certainly about peru it's the part of our experience in preparing the 30 tracks for this book, in researching the 30 tracks, in covering some 1,500 kilometers on foot in the course of three years. Our experiences were diverse, but there was a common thread that ran through them. They were always authentic. They were for real. And I think that's perhaps what we most enjoyed. Mm. You know, I think that authenticity is what draws a lot of us to travel and adventure. We want to have a real experience, especially in our world where so much is virtual now. You know, we do our virtual, business virtually. virtual and Disneyfied. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So that authenticity is something people have come to crave, I think. Indeed. Could be. Yeah, yeah maybe we should make up a new term here. We, we can call it, yeah, authenticity deficit disorder. How about that one? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no lack of authenticity at this end. At the same time, Kurt, I think it's worth mentioning to our listeners people who might be interested in coming down to South America, particularly to Peru and and enjoying the wonderful trekking there, that although there's much better infrastructure than there used to be, they shouldn't expect the same level of infrastructure that they would find, for example, in national parks of the United States, Canada, Australia, or Europe. Um, You still have to be quite self-sufficient here outside of the principal tourist areas. Um, you have to be able to rely on yourself, on your own gear and on your own abilities to enjoy a track and to do so safely. Mm. Well, that makes it even more appealing, doesn't it? A yes, number it does. of ways of doing it. Uh, if you feel self-confident, you can go on your own. Well, not one person alone, I wouldn't recommend, but a couple of people and explore. And other people might prefer to go on a tour, and there's no shortage of those available for trekking, for traveling, for experiencing South America. Mm, It sounds so delightful. Well, Daisy, can we ask you specifically what it was like to grow up in the Andes? Wonderful. I was born in Quito, the capital of Ecuador, and especially in those days, it was a beautiful city surrounded by mountains surrounded by the Andes, so much so that there were times that I would sit in my high school class and look out the window and see Cotopaxi, one of our snow-capped volcanoes, and daydream until the teacher called out and noticed (laughs) when they noticed. (laughs) um, It's very beautiful, and it was wonderful growing up here. Oh, that's fun. Well, let's uh, let the listeners know where they can get more information while we continue the interview. So we'll give the websites and what your books are just to kind of uh, get everyone oriented. And then we'll dive into more adventures in Peru and Ecuador. But the book that most recently came out is uh, Trekking Peru, A Traveler's Guide, and that's by Mountaineer's Books. So when was that book released and, and how can people find more information about it? It was released in June of this year, 2017, and uh, there's information about it in www.trekkingperu.org. Note uh, www.trekkingperu.org. And that is not .com, although if you go to .com, you'll learn more about Peru, but that's not your website. Your website is .org. So we have to make that. Everyone's in the habit of typing com. That's just the way it is, right? But this one's .org. .com belongs to uh, an agency, uh, a friend of ours in the city of Huaraz in the Cordillera Blanca in Peru. And he's had it, I believe, for many years, long before we probably thought of doing the Trekking Peru book. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. So you have other books as well, but you have uh, Trekking in Ecuador which is a a book that is very parallel to Trekking Peru, but only it's in Ecuador, correct? That's right. That was our first publication for the Mountaineers, and we're proud of that as well. It's been around for some time now, and many readers have written to us over those years about the the very special, at times life-changing experiences that they've had 
um, as a result of, of reading our book and coming here to, to enjoy the trekking opportunities, the adventure opportunities in Ecuador. And that's a great source of satisfaction for us. We also write for another publisher called Footprint Travel Guides. They're based in England, and they, tra they publish a wonderful series of general travel guides. Um, the most important of them by far is the South American Handbook. The author of that book is our good friend and colleague, Ben Box, and they do travel guides to individual countries of South America as well, of which we've written books about Peru, Ecuador, and Bolivia over the years. Perhaps two other websites that are worth mentioning in that context is the website for Trekking in Ecuador, which is www.trekkinginecuador, all run together, and that's .com. And also the Footprint website, which is www.footprinttravelguides.com. Well, there's another website that is uh, more information specifically about the two of you, and that is journeywriters.com. That's correct. So there's more than enough food for thought there. For, for <laughs> so how many books have you written now? You know, that's a good question. We're not exactly sure. Somewhere around 30 or 35, because at times we do an entire book, at times we're co-authors, at times we do the cartography, um, at times we do chapters for books like the South American Handbook. And so I suppose we should keep a more careful list, but I, I think we're rounding somewhere around 35 at this point. Well, I think it's wonderful that we have the opportunity to visit with two of the most prolific writers about trekking in South America. That's awesome. I'm glad that you're on the show to share with us. Only some of those books are about trekking, though, Kurt. And I think it's worth mentioning that the two trekking books are special to us in the sense that we started both of them with a blank sheet of paper. The travel books are wonderful, but there we build on the work of previous authors and editors. Right. We, we do new editions. And sometimes they're new editions of books that we have written. Sometimes they're new editions of books that someone like our colleague Ben Box and others have written. So that's, that's very nice. It's satisfying work. But there's nothing quite like writing a book all your own from scratch. And that's what it was like to write Trekking Peru. Nice. Well, here's a question for you. I'm going to have to kind of shape the question to your circumstances. A lot of Westerners would love to go and travel and see a new place like Peru or Ecuador, but there's uh, just a touch of fear about the unknown. There's you know questions about language barriers and cultural differences and uh, that sort of thing. Well, the two of you, Daisy, you grew up in the Andes, so that probably feels pretty home to you, pretty normal. And then, Robert, you've been there for so long now. Um, what would you tell people who have an um, apprehension about that, those locations? I think the first thing to do before going to any country is learning the language, or a little bit, enough that you can show you're interested and get your bearings. Uh, it's helpful. A number of people do speak English, especially in the cities, especially in tourist centers, but as soon as you move away from these, um, you're much better off uh, with Spanish in this case. Uh, there are, it, it's very different to experience a place when you can communicate with people. That would be a, a very first step. 
But on the other hand, you shouldn't be afraid to go for it. Uh, it's People are very friendly. Uh, Latin hospitality and Andean hospitality are, are well known and they're for real. Uh, mm. Going back to the language, there's uh, just one additional thing. In the highlands of Peru and Bolivia, in addition to Spanish, in Ecuador as well, but there's a native language that's Quechua, is the most widespread, and there's Aymara, and mostly in the area around the Titicaca Lake uh, Basin. And so even with Spanish, sometimes we find that we might be a little lost, and we've learned a a few words of the other languages, l l enough to maybe greet people. And of course, once you greet them, they start talking to you in their native <laughs> language. But when all else fails, a smile goes a long way. Right. Yeah, that's wonderful. I've also heard of a great idea. It's a picture book. And it's just a, a book full of pictures. You can point to something and then people know what you're looking for. And uh, I find that it doesn't matter what the language is. You can get by when you have a resource like that. Yes, yes, that sounds that interesting. That's interesting. We've never used one like that, but we've used lots of hand and facial gestures, and uh, just goodwill gets you by. Uh, people go out of their way to be helpful. We've been the recipients of so much kindness, so much hospitality, so much goodwill over the years here. Um, but be all that as it may, I would echo Daisy's initial remarks that the best way people can prepare for travels in this part of the world is to learn some Spanish. Well, Robert, what was it like for you in your first few weeks when you were in South America? I know you've been there a long time now, so you have to go plug into those old memories. But what impressed you the most about what it was like there? That's a very good question. Um, I think some of what impressed me related to the scenery, to the natural beauty of the areas that we visited, um, how different it was from the nonetheless beautiful areas I'd grown up with in eastern Canada. But it was so much more lush. It was so much wilder and more exotic to the senses here. Um, I was also impressed by how much more relaxed the people and the customs were more easygoing. Um, that's a two-sided two coin, of course, a two-edged sword. Um, things are a little bit less reliable. They're less punctual yeah. in this part of the world. Uh, mañana is alive and well, despite all the changes, despite all the modernization, despite all the information technology. Uh, this area is as connected as anywhere else on the planet. We're currently speaking to you from our home in a village of 4,500 people in the southern highlands of Ecuador. But nonetheless, I felt that I was in a place where, although nothing was easy, somehow everything was possible. And I've tenaciously clung to that feeling over the subsequent decades. That's fun. In the book, Trekking Peru, you said that you, you chose 30 trekking routes and you covered 1,500 kilometers to research this book. So, wow, walk us through some of that. What, what experiences did you have? We've had we've had a great many of them, more than we can possibly talk about in in an hour long interview. But you know, one of the one of the treks that we did somehow sticks with us 
even more than the others. Um, it was a trek to an area called Keswachaka, where four communities get together once a year, every year, to rebuild their Inca rope suspension bridge over the canyon of the Apurimac River. Uh, rope suspension bridges were very important in Inca times because, um, as some readers, some listeners, I'm sorry, I keep referring to everybody as readers. <laughs> well, Must you're a writer, we write it makes books. sense. <laughs> Must be because we write books. But as some listeners might know, um, the Capacñan, the Great Inca Road, ran from what is today the border between Colombia and Ecuador all the way south to central Chile and Argentina. Um, it, was, it wasn't a single road. It was a network of roads which the Incas actually adopted from pre-existing civilizations and improved and consolidated. And it added up to an amazing 30,000 kilometers mm. in total length. In order to make that vast road network feasible, they needed to span the great canyons which cut through the slopes of the Andes Mountains. And they needed to connect the roads at either end. And they did this using straw rope suspension bridges. And one of our treks in Trekking Peru took us to the annual rebuilding of the very last one of these bridges to survive um, and is rebuilt every single year, uh, usually the first weekend in June, although there's some variation in the dates. And if people are going to do that, they should, they should inquire locally to make sure they're not there a week early or a week late. And it was a truly amazing experience. Um, what do you think listeners would be most interested in knowing about regarding that that uh, that track? And I should turn it over to Daisy for her to fill in some more of the details as well. To you, Kurt. Okay. Well, I think we're going to have to find out the amount of time commitment it takes, some of the logistics. But before we do, I want to hear more details about the experience itself. So, Daisy, what is a landscape like? And uh, what can you expect to encounter on that trek? Well, this trek leaves from a city called Yanaoka. And um, first you, it's already relatively high. I don't remember exactly the altitude over. It's the, above 3,000 meters. Over 3,000, exactly. And you go a little higher uh, over to a plateau and you go over this ridge and you make your way down and you start seeing the canyon of the Apurimac River. It's a deep, deep river. I must add that Peru has many deep canyons and this is one of them. Just to see the turquoise water of the river when you first get up on top and look down is pretty amazing. So how high is this bridge? The bridge is about 25 meters above the level of the water, and it's some 35 meters long. It's quite impressive. I wish we had the facilities to show you a photo here, but those uh, listeners who are interested can see a more detailed talk and slideshow that we gave about this recently on YouTube. And we can pass you the link. Actually, the best way for them to do it is just to go to our website where they can find the link. Oh, that's great. So go to, and now the website is the trekkingperu.org website, is that correct? 
the trekkingperu.org website. So by all means, go to trekkingperu.org, www.trekkingperu.org, and there will be a link on the front page to the YouTube with a slideshow and a question and answer period with full, full details about this Inca bridge that there won't be time to get into now. But you asked us about one of our most memorable experiences. That's one of them. Uh, but the, the range of experiences is extremely wide. Another track that comes to my mind at the moment was the longest one in the book. And that took us for some 135 kilometers. Um, yes, from the Cordillera Vilcanota in the department of Cusco to the Cordillera Carabaya in the neighboring department of Puno. We were three weeks on the trail. And just the rhythm of life as we trek from village to village, from geographical area to geographical area, from basin to ridge top, down to the next basin. Um, in a wild area, there were a few villages along the route to, to resupply, but not it, many. Not many. Um, surrounded by high glaciated summits, including Ausangate, um, at some 6,300 meters. Uh, the highest in the Cordillera Vilcanota, uh, past Quelcaya, with glaciers that are some 35 kilometers long, the largest in the tropics of the Western Hemisphere, I believe. And um, just living on the road, on the trail for that length of time, is something that was very special for us. Mm. I must add that um, not all the treks are that long, and that there are many options for people who want to do day walks out of a town, out of a city, and some medium-sized walks. Uh, one of my favorite goes to a beautiful lake, and the color is, is something I've never seen before. The lake is called Tishugioc. It's in the Cordillera Blanca, the south end of the Cordillera Blanca, in the central Andes, not... Well, north-central north Andes of, of Peru. And it has this color, it's hard to describe. It's not the typical glacial turquoise. It's this azure blue, uh, deep blue. And you would think, well, it's a reflection from the sky. But when the clouds rolled in, it was the same. And if you get close to the edge, the water is crystal clear. You can see the rocks at the bottom. So there are some beautiful landscapes and um, it that can be seen on long treks and also on shorter ones well that sounds so nice are you hiking primarily on foot trails or are these uh like horse trails or are they roads or do the treks include include all of those it the treks do include all of those we tend to avoid road walking where we can we don't necessarily want to be competing with motor vehicles. Um, there's no shortage of trails in Peru of every imaginable description, both ancient ones dating to pre-Inca and, of course, Inca times with this fantastic road network that they had, much of which still survives. Uh, but there are also trails that are simply used today for getting from one village to the next where the elementary school teacher walks in from the town where he might live for a full day, in some cases, two days to get to the school where he's teaching. Um, 
And there are a few places where there are no trails at all, and we travel cross-country. It's official. Winter has arrived, and Bentgate Mountaineering is prepared to help you get ready for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear so you can get your skis and your boots there as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear as well as to get updates on all of their events. There is so much rich heritage that keeps popping up in what you're talking about here. And I think it would be fun to hear more about that. There are so many things that we've heard about, like uh, Machu Picchu, of course, is, is world famous. But there are so many other uh, ruins and villages and, and historical sites. Fill us in a little bit on that, if you would, please. Thanks for asking, because there is so much to say about that and something that we wanted to say how you can hike well beyond Machu Picchu. There's uh, Machu Picchu is the best known, and just among the Inca ruins that are in Peru and neighboring countries, uh, there are so many, so many more. This network of roads that uh, Robert mentioned, the Capacñan was the main one, the Great Road, but it had many branches. Uh, there were there was a coastal road and a highland road, and between them ran these um, side uh, trans transverse roads that are like rungs of a ladder. And uh, in many of them, you can see uh, even these staircases that uh, just go up and up and up. And in the, you know, at one point we were looking at one place and. From the distance, uh, you couldn't see where there might be a place to cross uh, a range. And you just kept following this old ancient trail that led you almost through a tunnel through the, the rocks and over to the other side. And uh, On a well-formed staircase. Like yes, that. yes. These staircases are, are just amazing. A term that was coined by our friend and, and colleague and our mentor, really, for the Trekking Peru project. Um, someone originally from Lima, Peru. His name is Ricardo Espinosa. We've learned a great deal from him over the years, and we have a great deal of admiration for his achievements. Um, among them, a trek that he did from Quito, the capital of Ecuador, to La Paz, the capital of Bolivia, traversing the entire highlands of Peru from north to south, 
on the Capacnan, on the ancient Inca road, whenever this was possible. But Ricardo coined the term for some of the stairways that you see over these mountain passes as stairways to heaven. And I think that's a very appropriate term in many senses of the word. So when we talked about the different terrain that you might be walking on, be it uh, vehicle roads, horse packing trails, footpaths, cross country, we should add stone stairways because you spend a lot of time on those, in fact. And going back to the heritage, um, yes, once again, the Incas are, were the last ones. They were there when the Spanish came, and so they're the best known. But before them came so many other cultures, and if you travel throughout the Andes, and especially in Peru, you run across many different cultures, and we did a number of treks in areas that uh, where you can still find ruins from other cultures, uh, like the Chachapoya and the Wadi and many others. Uh, I guess they're just names to most people, but if you are interested in archaeology, um, just a little bit, start reading up on Peruvian archaeology, let's say, you'll find out that, wow, there were so many cultures there. And trekking, you sometimes are walking along and you're stepping on some pot shares. It, it's incredible. Mm. It's hard to walk a trail in Peru without stumbling on something of archaeological significance. Well, that's neat. You know, there's some other things in Peru. What about the Nazca Lines? The Nazca Lines are located on the coast of Peru, to the south of the capital, Lima. Uh, they're enigmatic, of course, and very beautiful. They're intriguing. They're best seen from the air. So many people choose to visit them by flying over in, in small aircraft. There's an observation tower as well for those who prefer not to take their feet off the ground. But it's, it's more interesting to go up in one of the small aircraft. It's not an area that's particularly suitable for trekking, but it makes an absolutely fascinating visit. Well, what some people that may not know about the Nazca lines is that these are, are lines and kind of stick figures and things that were made at such a large scale that you cannot even see them unless maybe you're on an overlooking mountaintop or in an airplane. If you're standing next to them, they look like deep furrows in the ground. And I said they were enigmatic because people are still trying to guess what their significance was, why, why a civilization went to so much effort to draw these things when, as you point out, um, they couldn't be seen um, you know, under ordinary circumstances. And so there have been different theories over the years, some a little bit more far-fetched than others. Um, they are probably likely to have been a giant calendar. Uh, the straight lines that have been stretched through the desert sands of uh, the Pampa Colorada to the south of Nazca um, are a reference to constellations, perhaps. Uh, there are straight lines with which certain celestial bodies might have lined up at certain key times of the year, equinoxes and solstices, or certain bright stars might have lined up at certain times. And then the figures that are associated with them, there's a spider, there's a hummingbird, um, there are various others. Um, some of the, the nature of some of the figures is actually hard to describe. Some have been thought to be astronauts and, and a reference to visitors to the area from other planets. Who knows? There's lots of conjecture. Um, but as I pointed out, it being in the 
center of a very dry, flat desert area makes it a fascinating place to visit, place for conventional tourism and uh, for these overflights for which the area is, of course, famous, but not specifically for trekking. That's not an area to wander off on your own with a day pack and a liter of water because you're in the middle of a great big desert. Sure, right. Well, let's let's jump back to the Andes. I think that my uh, curiosity is just about all the variety that there is in the area. There's so much to see and to, I guess, be curious about. It just sounds like a fascinating place to go and discover. It certainly is. And uh, you find large uh, cordilleras, large mountain ranges that go for, I don't know, 200 kilometers. And there's like the Cordillera Blanca is full of, uh, it's all snow-covered peaks, and there's wonderful trekking there. And if you go to the south of the country, there are volcanoes, like in the Arequipa area. There's some active volcanoes even, and you're walking amidst the, the large volcanoes. Like we said before, canyons are everywhere, and uh, some of the deepest canyons in the world are there as well. There's just so much in the way of natural beauty. Every area is a little different. In the central highlands, you have these terraces, man-made terraces, that were built to, to cope with the very steep terrain. And some of these, in some areas, are still in use. So you see the people are, are growing crops and uh, the crops change depending on the altitude. So lower down you might have corn and higher up you might have potatoes and they're all almost on the same field. But because of the, the very steep slopes, you, you get different climate and it's, it's interesting. Mm. Well, if someone wanted to come and trek Peru or Ecuador for that matter, but what kind of weather would they encounter down there? In that sense, the two countries are actually quite different. Peru has a well-defined wet and dry season in the highlands, and the dry season is preferred for trekking. It's typically from May through September, inclusive, and that's when you can most reliably expect to have good weather, uh, warm, bright, sunny days, cold nights. At altitude, temperatures can dip well below the freezing point, so you have to be prepared in terms of your gear, your tent, your sleeping bag, your, your warm clothing. Um, but you won't get a lot of rain. There can be exceptions, of course, but generally it's nice and dry. In Ecuador, on the other hand, being closer to the equator and having much more humidity in general, you can have wet conditions at any time of the year. And Generally, in the mountains, the dry season is the same, as I mentioned, from May through September. But um, there's more likely to be rain even outside the wet season, and you have to be more prepared for that. That's an important difference. On the other hand, the temperatures aren't as low. It's warmer than it is in, in Peru or Bolivia. Mm, okay. It's a little warmer, yeah. Of course, the temperature varies uh, with altitude, so... The higher you go, the cooler it's going to be. But even at higher altitudes, the altitudes you'll be trekking in Ecuador are lower than those you would, might be trekking in Peru or Bolivia. And so it's not as cold 
even when it's cold. <laughs> and that's funny. That was actually my next question is what are the elevations that you're going to encounter on these treks? In terms of the book, our treks run from, in Peru, the Trekking Peru book, our treks run from about 1,500 meters above sea level right up to 5,250 meters above sea level. 5,250 was the highest pass that we crossed, Huancane Apacheta. And uh, so, yeah, you have to be prepared for altitude. You have to give yourself time to acclimatize to altitude. That's very important. And the best way to acclimatize is just to take it slow and easy at first. People who fly into high altitude areas don't give their body sufficient time to acclimatize. And they're the ones most likely to feel the symptoms of soroche or mountain sickness. And so our recommendation and what we do whenever possible is to make the transition gradually from the coast to the highlands. And certainly you shouldn't head out on a demanding trek the day after flying into elevations above 3,000 meters, such as Cusco or Huaraz. You need time to acclimatize. It's very important. Well, you're not talking about low altitudes here, especially the high pass you just mentioned, 5250 meters that translates to what we're somewhere around 17,000 feet yeah yeah wow. 17 18,000 feet and so yeah you have to take that very seriously um but the, the the body has various mechanisms various physiological and biochemical mechanisms for adapting to altitude it just needs time to do it and so the official recommendation by uh by physicians is not to climb more than 300 meters a day at high altitude. That's not always practical. You sometimes need to climb. You sometimes need to climb more than that. But sleeping a night at gradually increasing altitudes gives you a chance to acclimatize. Um, making sure to keep well hydrated. Although this hasn't been well documented in the literature, there seems to be an increase in urine output with altitude, you're, you're peeing a lot as you climb. And so you tend to dry out and you need to keep up with that by drinking more than you normally would. Since it's cold, you don't feel like drinking sometimes, but you have to push yourself. Um, needless to say, avoid alcohol and certainly tobacco at those sorts of altitudes. And um, just be patient with yourself. If you do find that you're getting some of the symptoms of mountain sickness, which includes headache, a pounding heartbeat with minimal exertion, nausea, occasionally even vomiting and, and fatigue, then slow down. Take it easy. Um, if the symptoms are mild, you can wait it out for a, for a night and see how it goes. But if the symptoms are becoming more severe, you shouldn't hesitate to turn around and go back down. Descent is the only reliable treatment for mountain sickness. Mm, yeah, good word. You know, we might be smack dab in the middle of winter these days, but spring is really just right around the corner. Make sure you've got one of our lightweight camp stoves ready to go in your pack for when the weather starts turning warmer. Both the 180 stove and the 180 flame are designed to burn the abundant wood fuels you find on the ground instead of requiring you to haul in heavy, messy camp fuels. Take a minute to head on over to our site at www.180tack.com to check out these American-made stoves that are built to last. You'll be helping us, and you'll be helping the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thanks, guys.
So what is the vegetation like? Are people going to be experiencing dense forests, uh, high prairies, jungles? What would people expect? Depends where you go. You can expect all, all of those. Uh, going back to trekking Peru, since it's all in, in the highlands, there's some cloud forests and there's many high plateaus and um, some areas you get some forests uh, there's a tree called the polylepis is the latin name and um, it's one of the highest growing uh, for trees the highest one in the world the world's, world's highest, highest forest, forest is, forest is uh, polylepis forest uh, you can bolivia. in bolivia but you get these kind of forests along the, some of the treks in peru as well uh, and uh, in other areas, you're you're above tree line, and it's uh, maybe rocky with some straw or um, some. It's what's amazing is that even in the highest places, if you look carefully between the rocks, you'll find these little flowers that show up, especially at the beginning of um, at the end of the rainy season, like if you go early in, in, in May, you'll find flowers where you wouldn't expect. And uh, if you go higher, you'll be on moraines and not likely to find maybe some lichens or something like that. And with uh, the climate change, there's more and more deglaciation. So uh, generally the tracks are n do not go uh, above the, the snow line the ice line but uh, and and that like I said is, is climbing so you're getting further away from the ice uh, these days than years ago when when the glaciers came down lower so you have quite a range uh, some there are possibilities for walking from the highlands towards some lower areas towards the lo lower areas towards the coast or towards the jungle and of course, the lower you get, the more vegetation you get. But generally speaking, the the rainforests, let's say, are not suitable for for too much trekking because uh, navigation is difficult. Um, you you probably would need to go with a native person from the area if you want to go walking in the jungle. Mm, just so much dense vegetation that it would be almost impossible to find your way through, huh? Well, you'll find your way through somewhere but you might not you find your way back out <laughs> <laughs> good point good point wow so the hiking that you did the trekking that you did to put together these two books uh, there had to be some surprises and some discoveries that were really amazing to you so robert what do you think about a surprise well one of the things that surprised me at first but now perhaps i've i've grown accustomed to and is is one of the experiences that I most cherish about being out in the back country of, of Peru and indeed the other, the other countries as well is the hospitality of the people that we meet along the trails. One might expect that folks would be perhaps cold and indeed they seem to be that way at first. Um, they're shy. Uh, they're a little bit withdrawn. And so based on that, impression you think well they don't really care about you or they're a little bit afraid of you or there's something that they're not happy or comfortable with 
But if you give yourself just a little bit of time, you make a little bit of effort to break the ice by speaking the few words of the local language that you do know, um, by being open to their way of thinking, their way of looking at things, obviously by treating everyone with respect and courtesy, by not pulling out your camera or your cell phone and pointing it in someone's face as the first thing you do, uh, you'll find that people are actually very warm, very hospitable, very generous of themselves and often of the few material possessions they have. Indeed, the less people have, the more generous they tend to be. We've been the recipients of so much kind hospitality over the years. People have welcomed us to their homes. We will come to a village, for example, and ask for permission to pitch our tent outside someone's home, which is something you should always do. If you're out in the backcountry, you can pitch your tent anywhere you want, and that's fine. But if you're in a slightly populated area, you will want to ask for permission. And when we do, often as not, the answer is, no, no, you won't pitch your tent outside my house. You're going to come and sleep inside because we'll make room for you. However small the home or however large the family, there's always room to spread out your sleeping bags in the kitchen or next to the fire. Um, and that sort of kindness, that sort of generosity, at first surprised me a great deal. Now I've come to realize it's just part of the fundamental and the norm of reciprocity, of always offering something to the stranger who comes through your community. And indeed, it's the responsibility of the trekker to reciprocate for that in whatever way he has at his disposal. Share some of your own food with your hosts. Offer to pay after you've been given a night's hospitality. Offer to pay a reasonable amount. Offering too much isn't a good idea either because that creates an unfair expectation of, of the next trekker who comes down the trail. Um, offer to help. Maybe you'll be the guest of some older people who are having difficulty with uh, with some of the tasks they have to do in the countryside. Well, take a couple of hours um, and maybe I can help you fix those fence posts or whatever else needs doing. But be willing to share of yourself in the same way that people share with you and you'll be in store for many memorable surprises of your own. Mm, that sounds so nice. I was just getting ready to ask, how can you uh, give back again? And I'm glad that you went there because most uh, most people, I think, overlook that. I, I get a lot of guests that talk about the hospitality that they've enjoyed around the world, but rarely do they say, and here's how you can give back. So thank you for that. That's really important. And one thing, uh, perhaps on the topic of giving, is uh, on in some places where they've seen a lot of tourists, there might be some people begging children and adults. It's not a good idea to to give candy to kids, for instance, because it just brings that expectation from the next person coming by. Um, better not to give to beggars unless, I mean, sometimes you're in a situation, you see a very destitute person that really has no means of of getting something uh, working their land or whatever then you know you share your food that that's perfectly acceptable but um, it it's uh, a good idea to to let's say if you get to a community maybe through the community you can 
pass something along for the children, for the school, something like that. And uh, you asked before uh, also what what's different, what perhaps could be a surprise to someone. I hadn't thought of it because I was used to things in this part of the world, in the Andes, but some people might find some of the food interesting. The potato is native to the Andes, even though uh, Idaho and uh, Prince Edward Island might not think so, or Ireland, <laughs> but really it's, it's a native crop of the Andes. It was domesticated somewhere around Lake Titicaca, from what we're told. And there are many varieties of potatoes, and that can be interesting if you're walking around. People do often give you food, and they'll give you what they eat, which is often boiled potatoes. But just the native varieties that aren't these all-uniform, uh, one-size um potatoes they're different colors there some are very small they're delicious and in addition to the potatoes there are other andean tubers that are related some are like the sweet potato but different varieties as well and others that are these long things that are very sweet they're called ocas and something else that is called mashua or isanyo and so you, you'll have the opportunity to taste these if you stay with peoples in their homes because usually that's what they'll give you. They'll, they'll make a soup and then they'll give you boiled potatoes of some sort. And corn is also native to the Americas. And um, there's some very nice corn there. Uh, there's one type that they call choclo cusqueño. It's they're huge kernels, and it's delicious. So that perhaps is something that uh, an added benefit of, of trekking in the Andes. Oh, I love the way that you can enjoy some of the local foods when when one travels. It's just, it adds so much to the experience, but it's not just about the food, is it? It's about sharing a meal with others. And there's something, exactly. it's just precious to, to share a meal with people. And uh, there's something innately human about that that I think is so important. So that's that's really Certainly neat. Certainly in, in very out-of-the-way places, people are cooking with fire. And I say fire, I don't necessarily say wood, because in many of these places there is no wood. You might find it interesting to know that People might be burning um, cow dung or uh, from the native animals, from the camelids, from the llamas and alpacas. They, they collect it, they dry it, and that's what they burn. That's what they have to cook with. And you'll be sit sitting with the family next to the fire. They'll probably be kind and give you the, the little stool closest to the fire, they tend to sit in these tiny little stools that I find rather uncomfortable, but it's a matter of style of what you're used to, I guess. Sure. And uh, you're sitting low to the ground next to the the, the stove with, where they're cooking, and um, you'll come out smelling like smoke. <laughs> but uh, some people say the the dung makes the gives the food a, a beefy flavor. The the soup comes out with a beefy flavor, but <laughs> it 
even if even if it's your boiled noodles, they taste different if they're cooked that way. I think we're talking about authenticity again, aren't we? <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I love it. Well, for Western travelers that want to go to Peru or to Ecuador or Bolivia, uh, what are the health concerns that they need to take into account? Um, you know, there's a whole chapter devoted to that in each of the, the two trekking books that we've written, as well as in all the books that we write uh, for Footprint, the general travel guides. And so it's, it's more, than, more information than we could convey while standing on one foot. But perhaps the most important thing to keep in mind is that you should be aware of your own limitations and to respect them. Um, you know, part of trekking involves pushing yourself, perhaps to the limit, but not beyond. Uh, you know, you don't want to get yourself into trouble by doing more than you're physically capable of. The other things are fairly straightforward. You want to be careful with the water. Um, really, water throughout the Andes of South America should not be consumed without being purified. And that doesn't matter if it comes from a tap in a city or town, from a spring, a well, or a river in the mountains. It must be purified in some way. And there are several different ways of doing that. Um, it's discussed in the books. Our personal preference is a ceramic filter with an incorporated pump. These are readily available and they're an indispensable part of our travel kit. But you should always purify your water. Uh, boiling is another way to purify it. But of course, if you wanted to purify your water exclusively by boiling, you'd have to carry more fuel than you can for a long trek. You want to be careful about food as well, especially in cities and towns. You don't want to eat on the street. The street vendors may be well-intentioned and their dishes might be very tasty, but they simply have no way of maintaining the hygiene of their utensils. Um, look for cleanliness when you go into a restaurant in, in a place that you're not familiar with. Um, when you buy fruit and vegetables in a market, wash them well before you eat them. Um, you want to take precautions against insects as well, especially in lowland areas. You'll inevitably get a few bites, but in areas where there may be diseases like malaria and yellow fever and dengue fever, you want to be especially careful by wearing, by wearing long sleeve shirts, uh, by having a good fly screen on your tent, and by judicious, by judicious use of insect repellent when that's necessary. Now, that's all in lower areas. Uh, so it doesn't apply specifically to the treks in trekking Peru because we, ch we tend to be in the highlands. And, and those are really the most basic precautions. But also if you do develop some minor illness, be it a stomach upset or an upper respiratory infection, which is fairly common in the cold, dry air of the highlands, just be patient with yourself. Don't get scared. Um, people get sick and get well in South America just as they do anywhere else in the world. Going back to the, to the food, Robert mentioned not eating in the street. We were talking before about eating with families. Generally, if it's been boiled, uh, it's something you can eat. Uh, just boiling will kill some of the stuff that might be in the soup. <laughs> right. If it's, if it's freshly cooked, then it's generally safe. Sure, sure. Well, you know, we have burned through almost all of our time, but I would love to hear a story about an encounter that you had that was especially meaningful. I'll give you a moment to think about what that might be. 
but something that impacted you and, and became a memory that you're going to hold on to for years to come. That's what I'm looking for. You know, there have been so many of them. It's hard to pinpoint any one in particular. But sometimes the most memorable encounters have been with young children. Uh, the sons and daughters of our hosts in villages and towns, or shepherds and shepherdesses that we will meet along the trail as they look after their flocks of sheep or goats or cattle, llamas and alpacas. And they will often tell us about the most amazing places that we've never, we would have never found on our own. And they'll leave their flocks and say, hey, come with us, we'll show you where this is. And they've taken us, as just one example, to this immense boulder called Khatun Rumiok. It's in the back bush of the department of Puno in the south of Peru, in the Cordillera Carabaya. And later on, we learned that um, this is what's called a glacial erratic. These immense boulders, the size of a two-story house, will have been carried there by glaciers in eras gone by. And so wandering through the fields in a relatively flat landscape with a few rolling hills on the side, these little kids, this brother and sister, took us to this immense boulder that the four of us then stood in the shadow of and we took some photos and stuff. And it's, on the one hand, the beauty, the wonder of the landscape of this, this glacial erratic that, that seems so incongruous in its surroundings. And at the same time, the goodwill of these young kids who, not necessarily expecting anything in return, but just to share some of what they hold to be special and fascinating in their surroundings, in their home, um, went out of their way to, to show it to us, to share it with us. Well, I love the way that again and again you bring us back to the people. It's all about the landscape and the trekking itself, the adventure of travel. But again, you bring us back to the people and the special experiences that you have eating with uh, the, the local people, uh, visiting with the children. And, you know, one thing about going on a little adventure with the children like you just described that is so delightful and surprising to people that may not be that familiar with it, is the way that the joy and the wonder of youth is contagious. And, Indeed uh, it is. You know, it makes something that might seem a little less than extraordinary, very extraordinary, because you get to see it through the eyes of the, of the innocent ones. And it's a beautiful experience. So, And it, wow. and it, keeps, you, it keeps you innocent as well. It's, it's the perfect antidote to cynicism which unfortunately is all too rife in, in other contexts. There are more stories we could share with you, if you wish. Um, one that's just come to Daisy's mind is about an earthquake that we missed. <laughs> okay, let's hear it. In the terracing. Well, it, it, Daisy's turn to, to talk about it. So go ahead. Well, we were on a trek in the department of Cusco where there are, like, People know many, many ruins, and some of these are these terraces uh, that go on forever. I mentioned them before. And one evening, we were going by a place called Pinchacunuyoc. Pinchacunuyoc. Its pronunciation isn't perfect. And um, it's between a wonderful place called Choque Kirao, which uh, 
I would say rivals Machu Picchu and it's uh, beauty. It's also an Inca place. And we were near this place and we went by these terraces and we got there. It was the afternoon. So we sat down and it was so beautiful. It was sunny. We, we sat there and we were debating whether we should camp there. And Robert sat down to make some notes. These terraces had uh, working water channels going through them. So I went to take a little bath. And at the end, we did stay in the area. And the next day, we moved on and we crossed the river to the next ridge. And we got to the next place we were headed, uh, a little tiny hamlet where a family had a campground, so to speak, a little area where they allowed people to camp. And when we got there, they said, are you okay? It's good to see you, but where were you last night in the evening? When Where were you during the earthquake? Well, we were sitting on these Inca terraces built over 500 years ago we did not feel a thing. Robert was sitting with his back to one of the walls. I was bathing in one of their channels, one of their irrigation channels. And we did not feel a thing. And it's pretty amazing that these structures have withstood earthquakes over hundreds of years. It's amazing. Mm. You know, I don't know much about it, but I've seen pictures of some of the stonework that was done by the Incas and others who built these things. And it's intricate, amazing uh, stonework that I think it holds together potentially because of the way the stones are cut to such amazing kind of jigsaw puzzle type shapes. Without any mortar, without any masonry whatsoever. Yeah, so they can shift, but they don't fall apart. They're just kind of uh, like a tongue and groove. They're held together. That's really neat stuff. Really neat. And archaeologists continue to study them, and I think there's still a great deal for contemporary architects to learn about how these structures were built. Right, yeah. There's so much that we can learn from travel, and so many amazing experiences that we can have, and so many memories that, you know, we can collect and put in our treasure chest of memories. We've got to do more of it. So let people know again, how can they find your travel guides? All right. Well, the first place to go is our website, www.journeywriters.com, and that has links to all of our guides, both by the Mountaineers, the publishers of Trekking Peru, which is our latest book, and by Footprint Travel Guides, who publish our general travel guides to South America, including guidebooks to Peru and Bolivia. So the best one-stop shop is journeywriters.com. That's right. Very and good. All the links, all the links branch out from there, like the different branches of the Inca Road. Well, I don't know about our listeners, but you have really made me want to go to Peru. I've long looked at Peru as an amazing destination, and talking with you makes me want to go all the more. I'm going to have to get down there. So thank you so much for sharing that corner of the world with us. If you'll permit us the final word, Curtis, we would like to thank you very much for offering us this opportunity to share with your well-established body of listeners. It's been a pleasure for us. And we would also like to thank both our publishers, 
the Mountaineers books of Seattle, Washington, and Footprint Travel Guides of Bath in the United Kingdom for giving us the opportunity to share our experiences with a wide readership. Thank you to all. Thank you. Thank you, Kurt. And thank you to all the listeners. And we invite you all to come and experience South America firsthand. We're sure you will not be disappointed. Mm, No doubt, no doubt. So for all of our listeners out there, thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. And remember, until the next show, get out there and have some fun. But you might, between now and the next show, think about planning your next trip to Peru or to Ecuador or someplace like that to experience some of the things that Robert and Daisy have been talking to us about. Wonderful. So get out there and have some fun. On Thursday's episode, we'll have Luke Moore on the show to talk about through hiking the John Muir Trail. Until then, get out and have some fun. Why don't you do yourself and us a favor and become a member of our Facebook group. In there, you can hear about some awesome adventures, learn how to do new ones, and share what you've been up to. And while you're on the web, do us a favor and go over to patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast and consider becoming a patron to help the show. You can also find a link to patron at the top of our website at adventuresportspodcast.com. As always, thanks for listening, guys.